to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. My boys, Roland and Aiden, have started preschool this fall, and Megan and I have been doing more driving than we ever have, taking them back and forth every day. I have never consistently had anything resembling a normal commute, because I work from home and then occasionally venture to campus or to meetings, but driving this much has led me to notice new things. And my new favorite discovery is the Sand People Apartments. Now, I don't know if you know this or if you're aware, but in Midtown, there's a Star Wars-themed apartment complex. You don't have to head to Disney in their Galaxy's Edge section to experience Star Wars for yourself. You could be living with Tusken Raiders and cosplayers. You might discover what's under their masks. Petabantha, drive a sand speeder. I imagine that it is absolutely incredible. And unfortunately, that's all it is. Because it's not actually Sand People Apartments, it's the Sand Pebble Apartments. But almost every time I drive by, my mind tricks me again and I see Sand People instead of Sand Pebble. And I have to be honest with you, Sand Pebble doesn't really move the needle for me very much. I'm sure it's an entirely pleasant, decent place to live, but it could have been Sand People Apartments. We live in a desert. It would have been totally appropriate and incredible. Huge opportunity missed, if you ask me. Now, Pebble and People can look pretty similar, especially if you glance at it quickly or the font is a little vague, but this is far from the first time that I've been just a little off about something. And while I don't start sharing my joy with others in all instances, I hadn't told anybody about the Sand People apartments except for my wife, I have certainly shared things I was convinced were right when they were in fact just a little wrong. Growing up, my mother instilled a love of reading for me, which meant that I read a lot and read words on a page that I'd never heard pronounced. And sometimes I would switch letters in my head. See previous example of Sand People and Sand Pebble. But then I'm convinced that I know the term correctly. Like the word opaque. I'd read the word many times, but for some reason, I was convinced it was actually opaque, similar to the word vague, right? Opaque sounded so much nicer, not as harsh and abrupt as opaque. There wasn't a chance I would spit on anyone when I said it. And I got into arguments with people, convinced I was right. But I was not. I was just a little off. But a little off is still really wrong. It's amazing how I can be so close in some ways, but not right at all at the same time. Now, this doesn't matter very much in minor examples like this, mainly they're just funny, but if we apply the same principle to something that really matters, we could be in big trouble. In much more serious ways, being a little off can be a huge problem. And we are, when we are not quite right, we end up misrepresenting the truth entirely. And this happens when it comes to Christians and the gospel. Now, the term gospel is how we describe the good news that Jesus proclaimed during his ministry, as well in his, in his life, death, and resurrection. We tell people that the gospel is life-changing, that they can respond to Jesus' invitation right now. But what if we are getting the details of the gospel wrong? What if in our desire to make it quick and easy to understand with black and white response of yes or no, we are actually missing the point? Just a degree off carried into distance is miles wrong. 
And this is not something we want to be wrong about. What if we're making the gospel into something Jesus never intended it to be or never in fact said himself? And what if people are rejecting Jesus because we aren't really sharing his message at all? These are the stakes if we get the gospel wrong. We could be sharing the wrong message, poorly following Jesus' example, and his reputation hangs in the balance with our words, as do eternities. So as we near the end of our shareable series, we've reached the point where we need to be crystal clear about what we're sharing. When Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 2.8 that he was delighted to share not only the gospel but his life as well, what exactly is Paul sharing when he says the gospel? Once we've built trust, practiced hospitality, shared our lives and struggles, and it's time to share the gospel, what are we sharing? Now, I was saved at Vacation Bible School in the Four Corners area of Colorado while I was there visiting my grandparents. The last day of VBS, the pastor came to give all the kids a clear presentation of the message of Jesus. Here's what I remember him saying. You have two options in life, kids. You can be Jesus' friend and live with him forever in heaven after you die, or you can reject Jesus' offer of friendship and burn forever in hell. What will you choose? Now, I was six, and I liked the idea of friends and heaven and Jesus. Why would I not want to be Jesus' friends? And whatever this hell thing is, it sounds terrible. It was a simple decision, and I raised my hand immediately. I was ready. They took us back to the pastor's office with the other kids who were ready to follow Jesus, and the pastor made sure that we were ready to commit to this sort of serious, heaven-oriented friendship. Now, the intention of this pastor and the VBS team was great, and I am not sure that I could have understood the complexities of the gospel as a six-year-old. But as this shows, in this instance, the gospel has been reduced to the secret answer to the question that means you are good, right, okay, eternally secure. It's a lot like the challenge King Arthur's knights face in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The Bridge of Death. Oh, great. Stop! Who would cross the Bridge of Death must answer me these questions three. Uh, the other side, he see. Ask me the questions, Bridgekeeper. I'm not afraid. What is your name? My name is Sir Lancelot of Camelot. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What? Is your favorite color? Blue. Right, off you go. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That's easy! Stop! Who approaches the bridge of death must answer me these questions three. Uh, the other side he see. Ask me the questions, bridgekeeper. I'm not afraid. What? Is your name? Sir Robin of Camelot. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is the capital of Assyria? I don't know that. Stop. What is your name? Sir Galahad of Camelot. What is your quest? I seek the Grail. What 
is your favorite color? Blue. No. <laughs> Stop. What is your name? It is Arthur, King of the Britons. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? What do you mean? An African or European swallow? Huh? I, I don't know that. Who do you know? So much about swallows. Well, you have to know these things when you're a king, you know. The right answer to three questions meant you got to cross the bridge of death. Fortunately, the gatekeeper was unprepared for Arthur's questions. If it had been me, favorite color, easy. Swallows, totally outside of my knowledge base. It's a good thing Arthur thought to think, to ask questions instead of to just answer. If I had been in a situation, I surely would have been cast into the abyss. Now, I believe that Jesus' message has become something that's a lot like what the Knights of Camelot faced at the Bridge of Death. If you can answer the questions correctly, you can cross the bridge, but if not, ah, into the abyss you go. The gospel has been reduced to the sacred answer to the question that means you get to cross the bridge, as if we will stand before God and he will give us a three-question quiz, which will determine our eternal destiny. Spoiler, it's not how it works. It seems like in many circles, the core of Jesus' message, his gospel, has been reduced to a description of the minimum entrance requirements that will ensure you go to heaven when you die. It is presented something like this. You are destined for hell if you don't ask Jesus to forgive your sins and invite him to come into your heart. If you do that, then everything is taken care of. Your sins are forgiven. Life will be great and eternal life in heaven waits. And this is probably how I have explained it many times myself, certainly when I was growing up. Now, this gospel may be enough to motivate a six-year-old to raise their hand, but it isn't all that compelling to most, and it's only questionably life-changing. Not many people are even sure what they think about God or eternal life or the afterlife. And what we're sharing is something that says you don't have to do anything. You just say a prayer once. I can do it once just in case, and I have the insurance card, eternal fire insurance card, taken care of. But my life and the world will continue on just the same. We need something that is much bigger and better than this truncated gospel. We need something that isn't just about someday, but impacts today. Because let's be honest, life is hard. Loneliness and depression, war and famine, rampant injustice. Pick up a newspaper or read the headlines online that are more than just about movies or sports or celebrities. Thousands of children die every day due to preventable diseases. Refugees are fleeing for their lives and having a hard time finding a country that will give them shelter. This is not how life is supposed to be. People mistreating each other or even killing each other for different colors of skin, different belief systems, different backgrounds. Everyone on medication for physical or mental health issues were falling apart. In our world, our worth is determined by what we earn or accomplish or the acclaim of important people. Good thing we have the right skin color or the brain or the talents that this culture celebrates. That's not how life should be, right? We distract ourselves with Netflix and travel and football to keep from having to confront our feelings, our brokenness, our world that we aren't sure what to do about. We're really bad about caring about others 
as much as ourselves. Our life is a movie about us and everyone else is just a supporting minor character. Loving our enemies, we're not great at loving our families or friends. And we know that it's not how it's supposed to be. Deep down, we know. The Bible tells us that we aren't the only ones longing for the world to be different. Paul writes in Romans 8, 21 and 22 that creation itself is groaning and longing for the day when it will be liberated from its bondage. And verse 26 says that even the Holy Spirit groans and longs for this and joins us in all creation, waiting for redemption and the restoration of all things. Author and pastor John Ortberg tells us the deepest and most mysterious description of what we're waiting for is found in the word eternity. God has set eternity in the human heart, we're told in Ecclesiastes 3.11. We have a haunting sense that there is something more than this transient world. And this small truncated gospel sees this eternity in our hearts and it raises us eternal life. You long for eternity because you are made for eternity. All of us are not mortal beings, but immortal. This life on earth is not the end, which is why you really need to make sure you're going to go to the good place and not the bad place. Because eternity is a really, really, really long time and someday you will step in to eternity. Now, most of us think of eternity as this endless period of time, but I'm not sure that we're longing for a continuation of life as it is now. There's so much broken in the world and this existence going on forever doesn't always sound that great. In fact, the fear of anything going on forever and ever has its name, it's a periophobia. And to many, it's just as terrifying as the idea of dying. In fact, I'm one of those people. Growing up, there were few things that would keep me up at night. There was the dark, <laughs> robbers coming in through my bedroom window or going to sleep without some music on, those might keep me up. Well, maybe there were a lot of things that kept me up now that I think about it. But the one thing that terrified me more than anything else was the idea of eternal life. I knew conceptually what eternity meant, but I couldn't wrap my mind around it. Everything in this life has a beginning and an end. And that made sense to me. It's what I've experienced. The idea of living forever, of existence going on and on and on was unfathomable. I would wake up in the middle of the night with my mind racing and my heart beating wildly, bordering on panic. And if I thought about it too much, I couldn't get back to sleep. And if I'm honest, it's still a little scary today. I knew that eternal life with God in heaven was supposed to be awesome, but I couldn't quite make myself believe that it really would be. And eternity is a long time. And it scared me. And honestly, I don't think I'm the only one. But I have good news for you, really good news, especially if this is a little scary for you. In the Bible, eternal life is not primarily marked by its duration, but by its quality. It's not about how long, but about how good and beautiful the life is. In fact, the Bible tells us that eternal life doesn't start someday, it starts today. There's only one place in the Bible where eternal life is defined, and Jesus himself defines it. Here's what he says. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To make it simple, I made an equation. Eternal life equals knowing God. 
Now, eternal is the term that is used to describe the life we have when we know God intimately. The gospel isn't about an arrangement, it's about relationship. This isn't about knowing things about Jesus, this is an intimate relationship with the source of all love and life. It's not about information or something you could write down on a test. We know things about people that we are in relationship with, but we know them personally and intimately as well. The closer the relationship, the more we know, not intellectually, but experientially. Ortberg says it this way, the kind of knowing God that is eternal life is an interactive relationship where I experience God's presence and favor and power in my real life on this earth. This is eternal life, knowing God. And eternal life doesn't start someday, it starts today. Near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that those who choose life apart from him in this life and the next are marked by a lack of this relationship. I never knew you, Jesus says. The main thing you need to know about heaven is that it is where God is. It's not harps or clouds or a pleasure factory of some hope or a 24-7, 365 infinity worship service. It's life with God. And if you don't know God, if you don't want to be with God now or then, you don't have to be. Hell, on the other hand, is the absence of God. And more people want that than I think we realize. But one part of the incredible news of Jesus is that God wants everyone to respond to his limitless love and to have a relationship with the source of our love and life, Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says it well, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God has limitless love for us and eternal life is available because of Jesus' sacrifice. The gospel isn't about insurance against the future. It's about assurance of the future. It's not fire insurance in case hell is real. It's an invitation into eternal life right now and confidence that the life that Jesus gives us means our future is never in doubt. You don't have to pray the same prayer over and over and over again to make sure that you're safe eternally. You get to pray and be with God every day as a response to his great love and you'll enjoy that relationship forever. But remember, eternal life is not primarily about duration, it's about quality. And eternal life equals knowing God. And that's not something you have to wait for. That's not an invitation to an event that may come someday. So you just need to say yes, just in case it happens. It's an invitation into a relationship today that changes everything about life right now and forever. So what is the gospel exactly? How did Jesus communicate it? Jesus' message, his good news, is not about internal fire insurance or getting out of jail free or accepting him into your heart. Jesus never says anything like that. Jesus' message, his gospel, is very clear when you look at the Bible. He repeats it over and over again in the books in the Bible known as the Gospels. What is Jesus' good news? The gospel, according to Mark, puts it this way. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now you may be thinking, what in the world does that mean? No wonder this isn't how we explain the gospel to others. So let's see if I can break it down for you and put it back together in a way that makes sense. 
So let's start with the repent of your sins part of Jesus' message here. Sin gets a lot of publicity in the church, but what is Jesus actually saying? Here Jesus is telling us what's wrong with the world. He's saying all the reasons that you're unsettled when you are really honest about the state of the world and the state of your own soul, all the things that you know aren't the way they're supposed to be, all of those are tied to sin. You're right. This is not how the world is supposed to be. All of creation, the reason that we exist is for love. And not just any sort of love, it's for the ever-expanding love of God, because God is love. Our incredible three-in-one God, who's a perfect community of self-giving love, created the universe to share the love the Father, Son, and Spirit have shared before time began. All of creation was not made because God needed us or wanted little slaves to do his bidding, but because he wanted us to share in his great love. But you and I both know that our world is not defined by love. Love is the incredible exception. Love is what we're drawn to. Love is the clarion call of another world. It's what we long for and are made for and desperately feel the lack of when we don't have it. We were made to share the joy and wonder of love, community, of oneness. But this isn't what we experience. Sin has mucked it all up and we continue to break apart and fracture from this oneness and community because of it in you, in me, in everyone. This is why the world feels so wrong sometimes, why we know some things just aren't supposed to be like this. So Jesus calls us to repent or to turn around, to change direction, to no longer live in that system of brokenness. He says, live in another way, leave sin behind, leave the way everyone else is living that is centered on themselves and their own safety and comfort and pleasure and success or their own fears and anxiety. Leave it behind. Believe the good news. The gospel isn't about someday. The gospel is about today. And this certainly includes forgiveness as an act of grace. It includes the promise that death is not the end of the story and nothing will keep us from experiencing the joy and love of God and his community eternally. But it also includes so much more. It's not just a message for someday or secret answers to the special questions, but a new way of life right here, right now. Life in the kingdom where all is as it should be and we can become who we were made to be in God. Jesus certainly came to sacrifice himself on the cross for our sins, but that was just a part of why he came. He came to declare and to bring the kingdom, to show us how to live, how to have life as God has intended it to be, fully alive, full of love, fully human. Jesus came to begin the restoration of all creation to what it was made to be. Jesus is making everything new. Jesus announces and ushers in the kingdom. When he declares his good news, he is saying, in me, this kingdom has come to earth and anyone can join the kingdom. You aren't far away. It's right here, right now. So close you can taste and see and know that it is good. You can enter the kingdom today. And then Jesus makes his invitation. Then and today, come follow me. Do you want to live in the kingdom? Follow me. Do you want to understand how to act in this new reality? Follow me. I'll show you the way. Listen to my words. Learn from my life. Believe what I believe. Act how I act. The gospel isn't about doing the minimum. It's an invitation into life to the maximum. Jesus tells us, I've come that they might have life and have it to the full. And life is one of the main synonyms for salvation in the Bible. 
First John says it this way, whoever has the Son has life. And in Ephesians, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. The term salvation and eternal life and the kingdom of God are all used in the New Testament to describe the same reality we experience when we become followers of Jesus. This is seen clearly in Mark 10 when an unnamed rich man asks Jesus what he has to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus then equates eternal life with entering the kingdom of God multiple times. And at the end of the story, the disciples ask, who then can be saved after the man leaves because he was unable to exchange his life with money at the center of it for a life with Jesus at the center of it? Salvation, eternal life, the life that is truly life, the kingdom of God is not a matter of saying magic words. Jesus didn't tell this rich man to believe the right things about him, but to center his life on Jesus and to live in the reality of the kingdom of God. The Babylon Bee once wrote a satirical article about a man returning the Bible he purchased because it didn't include the sinner's prayer to make sure he'd go to heaven when he died anywhere in scripture. Because it's not in there. Jesus doesn't tell us the minimum we have to do. He offers us true life, the sort of life that is found nowhere else but in him. It's not like acquiring elite status with a hotel chain like I did earlier this year. I knew I had to stay a certain number of nights, but with all the specials Hyatt was running, I was able to calculate the quickest and cheapest way to do it. And now, I'm a Hyatt globalist. And if I want to be that again, I can figure out the exact minimum I have to do to keep that status. Imagine that that was the sort of commitment that I made to Megan on our wedding day. I'm going to study and figure out the absolute minimum I need to do to stay married to you. Not to love you well, or seek your flourishing or care for your needs or the needs of any of our future children. If I'd had the audacity to ask Megan, you know, like what's, what's the least I have to do to, to, to stay married? Um, I don't think that ceremony would have lasted very long. Now, certainly, if we're honest, there is a minimum because marriages end every day. But that's not how you enter a commitment where the relationship of love and faithfulness is the main benefit. If you really want the marriage during the minimum, will take care of itself. But if we aren't careful, we treat Jesus like he's a hotel chain offering elite status. He's not. He's much more like a spouse on a wedding day. It's never been about the minimum, and when we think that it is, we are entirely missing the point. We don't just need the benefit of heaven someday. We need the relationship with Jesus, eternal life today. Nowhere did Jesus say, believing all I teach is true, that's optional. Believing that I can run your life and allowing me to do so, that's optional. Intending to actually obey me, that's optional. As long as you believe that my death paid for your sins, you don't need to worry about doing what I've said as far as heaven is concerned. Instead of trusting Jesus with our life now and forever, we're trusting an arrangement without trusting in Jesus himself. And following Jesus, having eternal life, entering the kingdom is about trusting Jesus. Orberg explains it this way. To trust Jesus in the gospel simply means to think he is right about everything and therefore to be ready to do what he says, 
not as a means of getting into the good place, but as the best advice from the wisest person possible. In fact, it's only as we seek to do what Jesus says, to be generous and forgiving and radically truthful, that we discover the kingdom he talks about is real and can be trusted. This is the great experiment that Jesus himself invites us to run. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teachings come from God or whether I speak on my own. In Jesus, the kingdom has come, and we should celebrate this incredible news and embrace it with all of our beings. Eternal life isn't something we receive for purchasing a ticket to a future destination. We experience it now by being Jesus' followers, and not even death can stop it. Following the way of Jesus is not an intellectual ascent or some special arrangement to get to the good place, but a way of life that is about being with God right now and then continues for eternity. The gospel isn't about someday, it's about today. Now, as awesome as this is, I admit that it's hard to embrace something that we don't understand very well. Kingdom is not a term that's used very often. So what exactly is a kingdom and what does Jesus mean when he uses the term? Everyone has a kingdom and it is the realm where your will is done where what you say goes. When we're born, it's basically just our bodies. It's what we have control over. As we get older, we start to assert our will in our own realm, and this starts for most of us around the age two. Because we are kings of our own kingdoms, we don't like being told what to do. And this is when children start to say no. Now, Catherine has not yet turned to you, and she's been rocking no for a while. And she asserts it with authority. You're not the boss of me. I do what I want, says Catherine's now. Now, my family went on a lot of road trips to Colorado from Illinois because that's where my grandparents lived. Perhaps you remember my enthralling story of being saved earlier. On the trips, my brother Brad and I would sit in the back of the car, and in the back, we had our own little kingdoms. Mom and Dad would talk and focus on the road, and Brad and I would do whatever we wanted to back there until what we wanted involved poking or yelling at or hitting each other. When things got a little too crazy in the back, Dad would assert himself from the front. For some reason, he thought the whole car was his kingdom. His hand would snake into the back, trying to assert his dominion in our little kingdom. And if for somehow we avoided the hand, the car would slow or even stop so he could fully assert his authority. And this illustrates the problem. It's hard to be a little king of a little kingdom without damaging other people's little kingdoms. Some of the time, my will conflicts with yours and the ripples impact every other kingdom because all of our kingdoms get junked up by sin. Mine is, and so is yours. When all little kingdoms interact and intersect, they merge and form large kingdoms, families, cities, nations, corporations, system. Systemic poverty and injustice, kingdoms junked up by sin. Oppressive governments, corporations that value profit over the health and well-being of the people of the world, kingdoms junked up by sin. Kingdoms are systems of personal power and control, and the intersection of all of our systems is the kingdom of the earth. And the kingdom of the earth isn't all that great because it's junked up by sin. But there is a solution. Jesus said there's another kingdom, the kingdom of God, where everything that happens meets with God's pleasure and delight, where love is the standard and law of the land. It's not about following rules or being nice. It's about being motivated by and extending and enjoying love. This is what we're longing for and what we should be working for, the coming kingdom of God. Jesus' plan was to bring the kingdom of God to the kingdom of earth, 
which includes dying on the cross for our sins and rising again on the third day, conquering sin, death, and evil. But it's even bigger than that. It's about the redemption of all creation. It's about making all things new and returning us to the oneness with God and each other that we were made to share if we accept his invitation to live and to move and to have our beings in him. Jesus' kingdom doesn't come with violence or force. That would be the kingdom of the world. His kingdom came secretly, quietly in a small corner of Judea and subversively spread from a handful of people who experienced and were transformed by Jesus' invitation to follow him and the kingdom he said that was good news. Jesus basically said through his words and actions, my plan is that I'm going to bring the kingdom here in my life, in my person, and I want you to devote your life to the same thing. He said, I want you to pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He didn't pray to be taken away from the kingdom of the world or for us to escape, but rather that God's kingdom would be made reality in our world and it would slowly start to take over. That it would seep into every aspect of life, into my words and my actions and my family and my church and my city and my world, into everything. But it always starts with my life and with yours because the gospel isn't primarily about relocation, getting us to heaven. It's about transformation, getting heaven into us. A lot of people waste their lives chasing after a lot of things. We chase after affirmation and success. We chase after money and pleasure, even good things. We pour our lives into family and friends and the causes. But if we aren't careful, we chase the wrong things. Jesus tells us something different is worth chasing. He says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Jesus says there is nothing more worth your life and effort and action and love than the kingdom. And if we get this right, everything else will come. Everything that really matters at least. With Jesus, the kingdom didn't come into existence because it has always existed in the Trinity, our three-in-one God from whom all love springs. But Jesus announced it, inaugurated it, and made it clear that the good news is that anyone can live in this kingdom if they want. In Jesus, in his kingdom, we have been given a wonderful treasure, and it is good news. Life in the kingdom is unspeakably good, and you want to live and serve and respond and love to the one who makes it possible. And part of our response is to use our gifts to help people fall in love with this good news. The gospel isn't about someday. It's about today. So when we share the gospel, let's make sure we're sharing Jesus' gospel. His message, which was confirmed by his resurrection 2,000 years ago. The good news of the early followers of Jesus was the same news that Jesus shared with one important and incredible truth. We know the kingdom of God is real. We know all that Jesus said is true because something happened. Jesus, who was crucified, who showed incredible self-sacrificing love, who gave himself as a ransom for many who died for our sins, broke the hold of death, conquered sin and evil, and rose from the dead. Jesus' resurrection happened, and it confirms all that he said, that the kingdom is here. You can live in an incredible relationship with the source of all love and life, Jesus Christ. So change all your plans. Reorient yourself around this eternal life that starts now, and even death can't stop it from continuing forever. 
The gospel is all about the kingdom of God. If we get this wrong, we miss the point of Jesus' gospel and we make it into something far less, something small and distant for someday, something stunted. Instead, we want the full gospel of the kingdom, of world transformation, of real change for us and for the world. Remember, the gospel isn't primarily about relocation, getting us to heaven. It's about transformation, getting heaven into us and into all creation. Jesus is making all things new. This is the beautiful picture that Jesus paints and the invitation he offers to us. Not a get out of hell free card, but life in the kingdom, the way everything should be all through him. When we pursue his kingdom first, all these things will be added to us. Life, love, peace, joy, forgiveness, and eternity in the presence of the king and those who entered into his kingdom by grace through faith. When we share about Jesus, this is the invitation he gave to people. Come and learn a new way to live for me. Invite the kingdom of heaven to earth. There is something better you've been longing for and you can step into it right now. The kingdom of heaven is here. Turn away from the life you've been living and begin to live life in the kingdom. Trust me, follow me, I'll show you the way and life will begin to be a little bit more how it was intended to be. Together we'll invite heaven to earth and I will return one day to make sure that it all comes together in the end when the kingdom will be fully realized. No more pain or tears, no more death or injustice or sickness. All that is broken will be restored, all that is lost will be found, and all that is dead will experience resurrection because of Jesus. And we will share the oneness with each other in our three-in-one God, the source of incredible life, changing, self-giving love forever. The gospel is for now and forever, for our eternal souls and our present situation. This is Jesus' good news. His gospel was about the kingdom. Eternal life isn't about someday, it's about today. The gospel isn't about insurance against the future, it's about assurance of the future. The gospel isn't about doing the minimum, it's an invitation into life to the maximum. The gospel isn't about an arrangement, it's about a relationship. The gospel isn't about relocation, it's about transformation. The gospel isn't about someday. It's about today. So let's choose today to embrace the eternal life that Jesus offers and invite others to join us in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we admit that we've heard the small gospel so many times. We've heard if you just say these words, if you just do these things, then magically everything will be fine. And we know that it's not about the minimum, Lord, that it's about life with you in relationship now and forever. And as we pursue you in relationship, all of the benefits will be added to us when we seek your kingdom first and your righteousness, Lord. May we be people of your way, Jesus. May we learn from you, live with you today and every day so that we will arrive one day in heaven in your presence and be delighted because we've been with you the whole time. So in Jesus' holy and powerful, magnificent name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, 
transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.